Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Elmira Bay Rossley, is the author of the new book, From the Other Side of the World, Extraordinary Entrepreneurs, Unlikely Places. She's also the co-founder of Foreign Policy Interrupted, which seeks to amplify the voice of female foreign policy experts, and she's a former assistant to Madeleine Albright. We kick off discussing the new book, which transitions nicely to a conversation about her experience growing up the child of Turkish immigrants. We discuss how she got her start working in foreign policy and how she met the one and only Madeleine Albright. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, thank you. Our community of listeners has actually grown pretty dramatically in recent weeks. I think it's largely due to word of mouth. So thank you so much for spreading the word about this podcast. And as always, feel free to reach out to me via Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg, or you can send me an email via globaldispatchespodcast.com. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. We post one of these longer interviews with foreign policy thought leaders every Monday. And every Thursday, I post shorter conversations with a journalist or think tank person about something topical and in the news. You can go to the website to check out our robust archives. That's globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is my conversation with Elmira Bay-Rusley. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I started my career out actually in government working on development issues. I've always been interested in how do you how do you work on these countries that always seem to have perpetual problems? How do you particularly get them out of poverty? How do you get them moving? And I ended up living in Bosnia-Herzegovina from 2002 to 2005. And it was there when I was working on the issues that I, I was really passionate about, about helping people, that I came to realize that the best way to help people is actually to help them create jobs. I didn't know anything about job creation. I didn't know anything about business. And so I started really looking at microfinance and social entrepreneurship. And when I started, when I started on the book project, it actually was a book about social entrepreneurship and writing about the amazing things that men and women all over the world were doing to address global challenges. As I really got into the project, I realized that it's, this can't just be siloed into something merely about social entrepreneurship. 
There are really great stories about men and women who are leading globally competitive companies and doing very big things that are on par with Silicon Valley. And so I the book ended up being a book about these extraordinary entrepreneurs around the world who are innovating in ways that we we often don't know about and, and don't hear about in the Western world. I like the idea that it started off as a book about social entrepreneurship and ended up a book about capitalism. Yeah, I mean, and, and the irony of that is I'm, you know, if, if, if you would have known me and my college self, you know, a long time ago, that it is ironic that, that it ended up being about capitalism. And while the book is very much focused on entrepreneurship and capitalism, it's also very much a book about development. And it's a book about foreign policy and a look at the world that is as it is today. So it's not purely a business book. And the stories that I write in there are really they really give you um, a portrait of what is happening and unfolding in places like Turkey, Nigeria, Pakistan, Mexico, Russia, India, and China, which aren't just tied to the hard economic numbers that we, we read about or we see on CNBC. It's really about the individuals that are building businesses and scaling them up and attracting investments and creating jobs that's transforming it. And so on the one hand, you can say that this is a story about capitalism, but I happen to think it's a story about globalization, about development, and ultimately it's a, it's a story about hope. So can you uh, walk me through one of your examples? I know you profile a number of entrepreneur, entrepreneurs. Uh, who do you profile? Um, my book starts in Turkey. That is um, where my own personal story starts. Um, my parents are immigrants from Turkey, and they immigrated to the United States from Turkey primarily because there weren't any economic opportunities in Turkey for them. They wanted to, you know, make sure that their children received a good education and had opportunities, and they felt that they could only do that outside of Turkey. And so the book starts out by profiling um, an entrepreneur named Bülent Çelebi who interestingly enough like me is a turkish american and he 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 attended the university of berkeley he studied engineering and he spent most of his life in silicon valley working as an engineer specifically focused on on chips and about a decade ago he got this idea of looking at wifi routers and using a new mesh technology which isn't just dependent on on uh, broadband signals or telephone signals, it's a technology that you can use um, to use any device as as a as a base of communications. And when he went to a number of people in Silicon Valley, they said that you know this technology isn't really necessary. Broadband was still new; it hadn't it hadn't penetrated the United States all that much. And he was thinking about places like Turkey. And so the story that I start out with is how Bülent actually went back to Istanbul at a time when Istanbul had not become the, the global powerhouse that it is now. I mean, Turkey is a strong economy today. But when he went back in 2004, it, you know, Tur the Turkey success story wasn't there yet. And that story very much is about him taking a, it's a leap of faith in doing something that he didn't know whether it would pan out or not, but he had this idea and he wanted to test it out and he thought, I needed, I needed to do this outside of Silicon Valley, mainly for two reasons. One was, the, the idea he had was putting together this special Wi-Fi router, it, it required hardware. And hardware requires a lot of uh, capital. 
So he needed to raise a lot of capital for that. The second bit of it was engineering talent. He needed really good, smart engineers to help him put this idea together. The reality is, you know, Silicon Valley is one of the, the most expensive places in the United States. And it's very expensive to hire engineers. It's very expensive to live in Silicon Valley. And he simply could not afford to do that where he was. And so he decided to go back to Turkey on a gamble saying that, you know, he could afford the talented engineers there and he could build this and market it out into the region that Turkey is in, in Asia, in Europe, in in uh, Russia and in North Africa, and so he he took that gamble, and so the story starts out there. And I mean, how did the gamble turn out? I'm presumably pretty well if you're profiling him, right? The gamble turned out very well. So Airties, the company that Bulan Chelebi started, um, is now a globally it's a globally competitive company. He not only produces Wi-Fi routers for Turks, but he, he also produces set-top boxes, which brings us um, this new phenomenon of internet television. And his set-top boxes as well as Wi-Fi routers, are sold all over Europe. He's got deals in Switzerland and Denmark, in the UK, in France, and he's actually signed a deal with AT&T here in the United States. And so it, it, it's interesting to see a Turkish entrepreneur bringing Turkish technology to the West. But did he bring jobs to Turkey as well? He has bought jobs. He's created a significant amount of jobs. And when you go to the AirTies office in Istanbul, it's also just it's such a it's such a departure from what what people are used to seeing. Offices are in these towers in in Istanbul, and they're usually just a half a floor plan, if at the most, a f an entire floor. And AirTies is housed in a building that takes up an entire block. And when you go inside, it very much feels like the startups in Silicon Valley. It has a very laid-back atmosphere, an open kitchen, and people going in and out. And, and there's, there's less formality there, and there's a lot more emphasis on, on creation. I mean, did it have any of the kind of transformative effects that you were looking for uh, when you, you know, when you when you sought out on this journey, trying to figure out who the big entrepreneurs are and and what difference they'll make? Like, what what actual difference? Did it make any demonstrable social difference in in Turkey having this one guy move in an operation there to create this new technology? Absolutely. I mean, the, so the story, my book actually starts out with the story of why I even took this journey because I knew Turkey to be what they, you know, what people used to dismissively call the third, third world backwater. And I, as a child going to Turkey on summer vacations, I would always hear Turks talk about the desire to leave because life there was so hard and there weren't jobs and opportunities. And the one thing that made me realize that entrepreneurs like Budet were doing were they were they were not only providing jobs for people, but they had become the role models and the inspiration for other Turks to actually take, you know, give it give a chance to be entrepreneurs. And so I was out in eastern Turkey in a city called Kars, which is on the border of Armenia, and I was talking to the front desk clerk about air ties because they had air ties Wi-Fi, and the desk clerk didn't know Bilen by name, but told me Bilen's story about how this this gentleman who was in the United States came back to Turkey to be a technologist. And he said to me, isn't that great? I want to study engineering and I want to try to do that. And that really awoke me to the phenomenon that 
there one of the reasons that you don't see people trying to replicate the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates, or the Michael Dell stories abroad is simply because the conditions, whether it's in Turkey or in Nigeria or Mexico, are simply different. And so when you actually have a role model who's in your country and who can actually make a company succeed, then, then, then something different happens. Then you start to actually get people interested because then they can say, well, if this person did it in Istanbul, maybe I can do it too. And that is what really set me on this journey. It was after that experience that I wanted to actually see what was happening around the world that I set off to see what was happening around the world in the, in the various different economies economies where people were talking about entrepreneurship. And I was curious to see about how they were doing it, what they were doing, and were they actually making a difference. And what I did see was not only are they creating jobs, but they are actually helping build entrepreneurial ecosystems in the particular places that they're going. So what Bülent did in Istanbul is he started Airties at a time when there weren't many entrepreneurs in Istanbul. Today, if you go to Istanbul, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of entrepreneurs in the city. There's a whole technology campus on two sides of the city um, at, at universities. There are entrepreneurship events every weekend, and people are actively talking about being entrepreneurs. A number of Turks have formed venture capital firms, and it's really scaling up. But it really did take individuals like Bilan to actually you know, take the first step and pioneer a path for others to be able to follow. And that's what I found in all the other places that I profile in the book when I went to, when I went to Lagos and Lahore and Mexico City and Monterey and in Beijing. What you see is in these individuals, these extraordinary entrepreneurs taking a risk and then helping to actually build an ecosystem out. And that's, I think, what's really remarkable about what's happening around the world. Um so you seem to suggest that that this um, the advent or the presence of, of all these new entrepreneurs in Turkey is contributing to an economic liberalization of the country, or perhaps you can say the economic liberalization of Turkey has sort of set the playing field by which these entrepreneurs can can take hold. Um, do you think the sort of economic liberalization of Turkey that that's underway, that's perhaps reflected? in this new crop of entrepreneurs will or may proceed in any way greater political uh, liberalization in Turkey? I mean, there seems to be something of a, of a disconnect there right now. Well, I don't know if the entrepreneurs are actually contributing to economic liberalization. I think what has happened is globalization certainly tipped off this phenomenon of global entrepreneurship that we're seeing now. I think the, you know, as as economic borders started to be erased and more and more U.S. companies started to outsource to places like Israel and India and to China, you're, you're not only providing economic jobs overseas, but you're also transferring skills. And so you're seeing, you're seeing the fruits of that rise up now where people are actually taking the lessons that they've learned with the economic growth that they that the, the economic gains that they've benefited from and and establishing businesses. I think when you're looking at a country like Turkey and the political struggles that it's going through now, you also have to remember the ruling um, AKP party came to power as a result of entrepreneurs in the heartland. 
it was entrepreneurs in the Anatolian heartland who were involved in textiles and in furniture manufacturing in the 1990s who created jobs and gained a tremendous amount of wealth that were able to support individuals like President, now President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who was formerly the prime minister and his um, justice and welfare party. And they they were able to then stay in power for for, for now 13 years. And it, it's their economic power. And what we're seeing is as as these entrepreneurs are creating jobs and as these economies are changing, there is a political change happening. Um, so earlier, and I want to switch gears a little bit, um, you mentioned that your parents uh, left Turkey uh, as part of a broader out-migration. Um, is, is that right? And, and where did they go and, and how did they end up in the USA? Yeah, my parents, um, my father actually was born in the Crimea. Um, which, when it was under the Soviet Union, and um, it was it was during World War II, unfortunately, when Stalin was um, he was ethnically cleansing the peninsula of all the the Muslim Tatars there. That my father's family had to flee, and they ended up in Turkey. And it was really at the prompting of my grandmother, who 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 wanted who, who wanted to actually be united with a number of the Crimean Tatars who had actually immigrated to North America to here into the United States. And they were able to be part of the visa lottery program that the State Department had opened up for for Turks. And so my father's family actually first came over as a result of the visa lottery um, and then and then eventually with my mother. Um, they settled here in Brooklyn and I grew up um, in in working class Brooklyn. Was there a decent size uh, Tatar community? There was. There's actually a, a very large Crimean Tatar community here in Brooklyn, and and we have our own mosque and our own Sunday school. If you if you have it, although I think we went we went to Sunday we went we went there on Saturdays, um, and it, it is it's quite it's quite sizable, and it's interesting to see how people. You know, even even when there are immigrants, they tend to to flock to people of their own kind and and to try to keep the culture and and to keep those memories alive. I mean, and it seems that the culture is again under threat, right, with the annexation of Crimea by Russia. Yeah, I have to say it's 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 really heartbreaking to see as the daughter of of a native-born Crimean Tatar what is happening in in Crimea today. Um, w once the Soviet Union had collapsed and Crimea had become part of the part of the Ukraine, a lot of the ethnic Tatars had started to return back to the Crimea. I know a number of my family members returned to the Crimea, and they were rebuilding their lives, and they were quite happy living there. And a number of the members of our community, my uncle and my late grandparents, they they visited the Crimea, and this and the place was really making a comeback for for the the native Muslim population there with the annexation that Russia the illegal annexation that Russia um, did last year it, it's it's really been a hard blow for the Tatars now all, their radio stations have been shut down um, they're they're under threat again once again like when back in my father's time when Stalin made it illegal to, for, to speak Crimean Tatar and for Crimean Tatar to be taught in schools and the Muslims there are again they're facing you know they're facing the same type of racism and xenophobia that they did um, under Stalin did you, do you sell a family back there I do uh, 
like what what are they what are they like telling you and, and have you visited at any time recently I haven't visited and I, I this is something that I very very much want to do and I mean they don't really say anything I, I think they're very scared to talk on the phone and you can hear it in their voices they they don't say anything they just say that everything is fine but you know from the news reports that we have we know that they're not and people who do come back from the Crimea and and had paid a visit there tell us that you know there's they're really under threat the the muslim community there is under threat uh so in brooklyn how did your family find work um my father um and my my uncles i have i i had a lot of uncles and they started an auto repair shop the bayrosley brothers auto repair shop in brooklyn and they they fix cars can you uh put together an engine I can't. It's, this is. I, I have to say, I'm. I'm definitely an independent woman. I'm a go-getter, and you know, I'm. I'm afraid of nothing. But I have to say, when it comes to cars, I'm completely clueless. <laughs> um. So growing up in in Brooklyn, in this uh, really unique, it's a pretty unique immigrant community. I mean, it's not. You know, it's not a a widespread immigrant community, right? The the Crimean Tatars, compared to other immigrant experiences in the U.S. Um. How. Uh, I, I guess, how did you come to be so interested in, in, in starting career in, in journalism and in foreign policy issues? Um, yes, I mean, the Crimean Tatar community is not very widespread, but I also think because um, the Crimean Tatars are, um, they're, they're Muslims and they also identify, they're, it's a Turk, they're a Turkic people and they speak a Turkic language, um, very much identify with the Turks. And my mother is a Turk. And so um, I think I grew up very much more involved in the Turkish community and getting involved um, and, and aware of, of Turkish issues. I think as somebody with a name like Elmira Bayrosli, I was always made aware that I was from somewhere else. And people would always ask me, you know, where am I from? And when Brooklyn wasn't a sufficient answer, I, I always, I was always made aware at the earliest of ages that I, that there was a greater world out there and that I was a part of it. And so my interest in foreign policy is just a result, I think, of my circumstances, but also a result of traveling to Turkey as a child. Um, I traveled to Turkey in the 1970s and the 1980s when Turkey was not a developed economy, when there weren't telephones, when the television only came on at 8 p.m., when there were still dirt roads. I mean, Istanbul is one of the most cosmopolitan cities today, but it was definitely not at, it was not that way when I remember as a child. And when you go to a place like that from New York City, it really stands out in your mind. And the things that stood out in my mind were not only the contrast between physically what what. Turkey was like, but also what it what impact that Im, that immigration that immigrant experience had on my parents. My mother was always just so much more happier, and she came alive when she was in Turkey. And you could see that it was a place that if she could stay, she would. You know, the people, her family, the food, the culture. It was something that she didn't want to part with. And for me, it was important to go out and and to find a career that could enable countries like Turkey to advance as America had had done so that people didn't have to leave their homes and the people that they love in order to find work and opportunity. And so how did you go about doing that? What, what were your first uh, first jobs? So right out of college, I started working um, at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations. I started actually working for Madeleine Albright when she was the U.S. representative to the U.N. And I... Um, doing what? I mean, right I, 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 I was foreign service. 
I was not in the Foreign Service. I had done a summer internship at the U.S. Embassy in Ankara, and I was coming. I was coming back to um, to New York to do a graduate degree at at Columbia University, and I was looking for. I was just looking for a part time job, and I answered phones. I was an assistant. I answered phones, and I fetched lunch, and um, I did whatever else was asked of me for for um, then Ambassador Albright. And I think that um, because I I. I just I was so dedicated to what I was doing. I remember my my younger self then, and I was so I was so it took everything so seriously um, that that um, you know Secretary Albright then asked me if I would join her staff in Washington, and then asked and asked me to join her staff as Secretary of State, where I was a political appointee. And so I worked. I lived in Washington, and I worked for the first female Secretary of State. What was first conversation you had with Madeleine Albright? Do you recall it? Um, I had, I, I mean, we had a number of different passing conversations. Um, she was always somebody who was, um, I think, talk about the work ethic that I've gained. I think, you know, she was always somebody who took everything very seriously. And so, you know, I would watch her come in in the mornings and it was always about, you know, what am I going to read and, and, and having meetings and getting as much information. And I, I think that really left an impression on me about, you know, really knowing your stuff and really working hard. And I think you always hear Madeleine Albright really talk about that. You know, when you're going to interrupt, you really had, had better know what, what you're saying. And just in terms of, a conversation that I remember having with her, I think it was when I had gotten a temporary job um, working at the UN General Assembly, and um, it was only a three-month contract, and my contract was up, and, and I went in to thank her, and she she really went out of her way to make sure that I, I could stay on her staff and, and let me know that I was a valuable member of her team. And, and to me, I think it really spoke to who Madeleine Albright is, is that she really is somebody who values hard work and is not concerned about whether you come from a, a networked family, a well-established family. Um, you know, it's, it's really about what is the value that you add to her team. And, and I have to say, I, I, have learned a lot of really great lessons from her, but I think that the, the, the looking at the caliber of, of a person over above anything else is the most important. Um, so the, you know, when Madeleine Albright became secretary of state, the U S foreign policy was consumed by the crises in the Balkans. Um, how directly and you and Rwanda and Rwanda. So what year did you, what did you come to the state department? Um, I started working for um, Albright in 1993. Um, and, when, and when did you transition to the uh, State Department with her? I went. I moved down to the State Department in 1995. Uh, so, what were your what were the big issues you were working on, and and in what capacity were you at the State Department? Um, I, I was again. I was just. I was an assistant, but I I had graduated up from answering phones, and it was much more about you know looking at and preparing um, talking points and briefing papers. Um, as you pointed out, the the Balkans, you know, the Balkan wars were raging. Um, there was a terrible genocide in in Rwanda. Um, but Iraq was also, it was also an issue. I mean, you have to remember it was in 1991 that, that they had the Gulf, the Gulf war and they still, um, the state department in Washington were still dealing with the outfall of, of the 1991 Gulf war. And so there were those, those were the issues that, that we were grappling with. And it was really interesting to see it from, from the front lines of foreign policy making to see the very difficult issues that were presented and and how how those decisions 
are are made. They're they're not made easily. Do you remember one particular uh, decision and and the tough questions that you and the secretary had to face? Um, I wasn't I, I I I wasn't high ranking enough to actually be in. But any you witnessed it. You're you're in the room probably. Um, I was, I mean, I, I think I, what I, what I witnessed was a lot more. I don't remember a particular incident, but I have to say, I think I witnessed a lot of the, I I think a lot, a lot of the stress and a lot of the thought that goes into, um, coming to something like the Dayton Peace Accords, because that, that happened, um, in 1995, and when that was when I was at the State Department, and my colleague Jim O'Brien was actually p- part of the team, Warren Christopher's team, that was working with Richard Holbrook in and working that out. And David Sheffer, who was also on on Madeleine Albright's staff, and who was the first ambassador for war crimes at the State Department, and he really was pushing for a war crimes tribunal and looking at these issues and. Look and, and and I think looking back, I mean that was twenty years ago. But when you think about it, it was unfolding. And even bringing out something like the war crimes tribunal, that was that was new, and it really spoke to the things that the United States valued, which is justice and human rights, and making that an element of of the Dayton Peace Accords and the entire peace process in the Balkans was something that I, I think people underestimate how difficult that was. Uh, I mean, did you have a moment where you're like, I am, I am witnessing history. This is the, the, this moment is something that I will always remember. I, you know, I have to say, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm doughy eyed, but I, I never took for granted a day that I went into the state department. I mean, I always knew it was, it was history. I mean, it was, it was remarkable to, be working in an office and then you turn on the television at night and it was the very things that you heard you heard people talking about and the decisions being made and it was being flashed across whether it was the Washington Post or or whether it was on Nightline and you were hearing it in real time and as as a, as a 20-year-old and as somebody who you know, again, you know, blue collar immigrant parents, you know, it was it was beyond my wildest dreams. And I, I think all of those things really stood out in my mind. And I think the thing that really stood out in my mind were the the individuals that I got to meet, you know, from President Clinton to Jimmy Carter. Um, I got to meet Vlasov Havel um, and I got to meet Aretha Franklin. And, and how did it, you meet Aretha Franklin? Aretha Franklin. Um, there was a the State Department has a. They have a. They work with the Thelonious Monk Institute, and um, the Secretary of State always hosts um, a, a, a reception for the Thelonious Monk Institute and for um, for people that the the institute wants to honor. And Aretha Franklin was one of the guests there once, and I got to meet Aretha Franklin. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so, how long were you were you at the State Department? Were you working for Madeleine Albright the whole time? I wasn't working for Madeleine Albright the whole time. So um, in the middle of her tenure as Secretary of State, I, I really wanted to actually use my master's degree. I got a master's degree in 
um, in, in international relations, particularly focused on, on Turkey. And I wanted to be able to apply that. And the Cyprus issue was um, rearing its head again. And President Clinton had appointed Richard Holbrook to be the special envoy to the Cyprus negotiations. And as he was putting his team together, I asked um, the secretary if I could actually go and work on that particular issue. And, and she was very kind enough to make that arrangement. And I actually had an opportunity to work for Richard Holbrook and work on the Cyprus issue, getting to go to Cyprus and then also to Greece and Turkey and, and getting to actually work on a, on, a, on, a, on a narrow particular foreign policy issue. That, I, that was really well, – that, that was a really terrific experience. Let's talk about that for a second. Was, was Holbrook able to push the needle on the Cyprus issue? I mean it remains unresolved to this day. Can you uh, maybe describe what the Cyprus issue is? Uh, as we means a background for people who aren't quite as familiar, and then uh, talk about what Holbrook was able or not able to do. Sure, Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean. Um, it is largely populated by Greeks, but it also has a significant population of Turks. And in 1973, um, after a coup on the island that changed the government, um, a government that had not been friendly to the Turks, the Turkish um, Turkey and the Turkish government intervened in order to protect um, Turkish nationals. And since then, the island has been divided. The north part of the island um, is under Turkish control, and um, the southern part of the island is under Greek, Greek control. Um, Countries, the only country in the world that actually recognizes the northern um, part of Cyprus is Turkey. Um, no other country recognizes um, what they call the Turkish occupation. And w when when we were working on it with Ambassador Holbrook, there was a lot of progress. There was a lot of progress movement, mainly because Cyprus had been an applicant to the EU. And it was looking for EU membership, and there was this hope that once it became a member of the EU, that the that the situation would resolve itself, and the island would then be once again reunited. Um, there was a, there was a lot of progress, but I think it's always one of these things with it's 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 one step forward and two steps back, and and um, it still continues to be an intractable problem. Um, and it's sort of awkward for the U.S. too, because you know both Greece and Turkey are obviously you know NATO allies. Absolutely, I also think it's. It, it, I, I think it's both. It's awkward for the Greeks and the Turks too. I think you know as you're looking at you know going back to my book and the globalization of the economy, Turkey's economy has grown so much more than the Greek economy, and I think that the two neighbors really do depend on trade. And, and good ties between between one another. And so, you know, and then taking the, the U.S. into the equation, I think, yes, absolutely. I mean, both are, every, you know, they're both NATO members, and it's, it, it, it's an unfortunate situation that, that hopefully, I mean, it, I, 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 I will admit I haven't been following it in, in the past several years, that, but it, from what I understand, it looks like there, there might be some hope in an opening for negotiations. I mean, how much of this is um, just sort of due to domestic Turkish politics? Like, is there, um, you know, is it sort of like a nationalist issue that they're not going to cede any territory in Cyprus and it becomes, you know, a, on, on the platform of the major political parties? You know, I have to say, I think Cyprus, you know, doesn't even register on 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 the Turkish political scale. I, I it's I think just in terms of the importance of of the number of issues that 
the government in Ankara has to deal with, I think Cyprus is not is not high on the list. I think a number of years ago there was a referendum um, um, conducted in Greece about accepting a plan, a UN plan that would would have reopened negotiations and hopefully solved the the Cyprus issue that the that the Greeks actually voted against and said that they they rejected this plan the Turks had voted for it and they wanted to actually resolve the issue because the economic isolation that the Turks in northern Cyprus have endured um, for for nearly 40 years um, has not been it has not been good for them and I think everybody wants to see this situation resolved but I think after the Greeks had rejected that referendum that the situation it 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 just it just got it got sidelined um so you referenced earlier that you were working in bosnia uh, how did you end up there i um i went to bosnia so i left the state department in 2000 um after the 2000 elections and i came back to new york and i was working in the private sector for a little while and i have to say um even though i was making you know good private sector New York money. I really miss working on international issues. You know, I always found myself going to the New York Times and NPR and really trying to, you know, learn everything that was going on. And I really wanted to get back into working on on the on the issues that I was very passionate about. And I had gone on an election observer mission before I had left the State Department with the OSCE. I had gone to Kosovo to observe their first elections, and I got familiar with the OSCE, and um, just randomly, I was on the OSCE's website looking at you know various job openings, and I saw an opening that, that I thought I was qualified for, and so I applied for it, and I got the job, and so the rest is history. What was the gig? What was the job? It was working just as a, just it, it working on Again, a lot of the same issues that I was working on at the State Department, um, you know, working, you know, putting together talking points and briefing papers and drafting speeches. And so I went off to Sarajevo in March of 2002 and I worked for the head of mission who was um, Bob Beecroft at the time. And and I I got to work with him on a number of really great issues by his side. But then um, a year later, the, the spokesperson at the at the OSCE mission to Bosnia Herzegovina left, and I applied for that job, and I became the OSCE um, Bosnia Herzegovina chief spokesperson. That has to be a pretty challenging job, though. I would imagine. I mean, there are so many intense political sensitivities, even this to this day in in Bosnia Herzegovina. Um, did you run into to to big to any like what were, what what were your key challenges as a uh, spokesperson then? Well, I mean, one of the, as you pointed out, I think one of the key challenges is because Bosnia has three different ethnic groups that, that are still bitterly divided. One of the challenges was dealing with three different news corps. You know, it was working with the Bosnian Muslims and then the Croats and the Serbs, each of which had their own television and newspaper outlets and making sure that when you said something that one didn't misconstrue it to the other. And so one of the, it was one of these um, high wire balancing acts to make sure that anything that you said wasn't going to be taken by one ethnic group and then turned, turned against you um, because everything in Bosnia. Did that ever happen to you? Um, it, it, it didn't happen to me personally, but it happened to a lot of people at the mission, and we were working on the very um, tenuous issue of education reform, trying to um, reform this divided education system that, 
that had been in Bosnia for a decade, um, the Croats and the Serbs and the Bosniak Muslims all teaching their children a different version of history and trying to reform it so that there was one system, not 13 ministers, not different versions of history. And so there was one history of Bosnia and it was one of the most difficult things to do. And and unfortunately, we did not succeed in doing that. Well, I mean, isn't that almost by design of, of the Dayton Accords, though, right, that you have these parallel pillars um, for the different ethnic groups. I mean, that's how you, you know, I think it's been said before that it's a good way to sort of end a war, but not a good way to build a country. I've written on, I've written on this before. I think that, you know, it's, I, I think the Dayton Peace Accords was incomplete. It did end a war, um, but it has not brought about a full peace to the Bosnian people. You still have um, an internationally appointed high representative who acts as a pseudo-governor over the country, who has final say over laws and and political decisions in the country. There are still three presidents in Bosnia. The country is divided between two, two different sections, the Republic of Srpska and the Federation. And even in the Federation, that's divided into several different cantons that are split between the Bosniak Muslims and, and the Croats. And when you have such a jigsaw puzzle, it's very difficult to actually make political progress on anything. And when everything is seen through an ethnic prism, um, progress doesn't get made. And you're seeing that in Bosnia now. The economy has not moved forward. A lot of people in Bosnia are out of jobs. A lot of people, a lot of young people, are leaving the country, and the country really needs to be reformed. And one of the things that they really need to do is is close down the office of the high representative and and and, and empower Bosnians to actually take control of their own political systems, so that they're not using the high representative's office or each other as an excuse not to actually implement much needed reforms. Do you think the or is the hope that the attractiveness of the European Union, such as it is or, or such as it was, is the force that might finally, you know, bind Bosnia more tightly together? For a long time, I think that the the allure of, of EU membership is what actually forced a lot of Bosnian political leaders to actually work and collaborate together. I think, unfortunately, as we've seen over the past year, especially with the crisis in Greece, um, and I think the EU just just stalled. I think that I, I think there's very little hope in Bosnia that there will be any any type of sitting down with the EU and, and membership into the EU anytime soon. Um, before we let go, we're just about out of time, but I do want to talk about FPI, Foreign Policy Interrupted. Um, you referenced the famous Madeleine Albright, Albright quote about um, you know interrupting. Uh, can you? Where did this idea come from? How did you and, and Lauren Bond, your your partner, come up with this? Um, Lauren and I had had become friends, and she had moved to Istanbul, which I know very well. Um, and I had met Lauren during her time. I was following her while she was covering the Arab Spring in in Egypt, while she was on the ground at Tahrir Square, and um, you know, just immediately formed a bond. And and we had been talking just regularly about our respective careers and and the things that we wanted to do and i think it was at a time when 
there was, I think every six months or so, there's always an uproar about where are the women, you know, why are women's voices not being represented in foreign policy? And we got into a discussion about, you know, where, why do we, why do we always have this problem? Why doesn't someone just fix it? And I think we just sat down and said, well, let's do it. If no one else is doing it, let, let the two of us do it. And we sat down and we hashed out, you know, what are, what are the problems? The problems are, I think, a lot of women are hesitant to volunteer themselves. They want to be perfect before they can actually appear on a podcast or a radio show or, or on television. Um, so I think that's one element of it. It's about, you know, women encouraging them to own their confidence and really put themselves out there. I think the second element of it is, is that now that we're living in a 24 seven news cycle, um, radio and television is under much more pressure to get out quality content and bookers, producers are really under the gun to make sure that the people that they call upon are qualified to get on and to talk about any range of issues. And I think what's ha- what, ha- what has happened is when, when you're under that pressure, you just fall back on what you know. And I think, be- unfortunately, because traditionally a lot of media used to just always be white men, they fall back on a Rolodex of white men. And what we saw is, I think that, you know, certainly when we've talked to bookers and producers, they are very interested in having different voices and different representation. They just don't have the time to find that talent. And so what we decided to do was create Foreign Policy Interrupted as a platform that could not only provide the confidence building and the media training to the women, but also to work with the media outlets to work with them, help identify qualified voices for them. And really, our goal is to diversify the discussion. It's really to actually have a discussion in the 21st century that reflects the 21st century. We don't want to be a girls' club. We just want to sit at the table, and we actually want to talk about the issues. We really care about foreign policy, and foreign policy in the 21st century is a very different beast. It's very dynamic. It's very fast-moving. I think anybody at the State Department will tell you that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you really need individuals who have a wide range of expertise and 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 experience to actually weigh in and comment and present solutions. Well, you know, you started FPI around the time I think I started the the podcast and I made a commitment to uh, listeners early on that I was going to be like 50-50 male-female because as yet, you know, it's really easy to fall into the trap of just talking to like white men in foreign policy. And that just like wouldn't be interesting to me, especially the kind of interviews I like to do. So I've come to rely on on your service as well to, to you know mine your email newsletter for for people to interview as well so thank you thank you for doing what you do I mean it's, it's helpful to me well thank you mark thanks for being aware and for for reaching out to enrich and and, and change the conversation uh, well and thank you for your time I so look forward to reading your book uh, everyone check it out I'll post a link to it on the podcast homepage but thank you so much Elmira okay great thanks so much mark All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Elmira and really great, fantastic service with Foreign Policy Interrupted. If you have not signed up for their newsletter, I encourage you to do so. We have some great programming coming up in September, so stay tuned. And if you've not already done so, please do leave a review on iTunes. As you know, for my little ditty at the end of most episodes, it really does help other people discover the podcast. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.